0: Seated. Amen. I invite you to turn with me and these are words I've been longing to say for a very long time. Turn with me to John chapter 17. T- John chapter 17, high priestly prayer of Jesus. This chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Absolutely love this chapter. Last Sunday we were able to do a review Of all the lessons that we've learned, uh, 10 of them, in fact, from the Upper Room Discourse thus far, chapter 13 through 16, we summarize them in four main statements. Trust the Father, treasure the Son, be led by the Spirit, and love others. Two T's, two L's. Trust, treasure, be led, love. We see the, the Trinity involved in all of those. Trust the Father, treasure the Son, be led by the Spirit, love others. These are the words that Jesus had said to his disciples, knowing that he is about to die, and he, he wants to make sure that since he is going to be gone, he prepares his disciples one last time. And his teaching has ended. He is going to teach us through his prayer, but his formal, explicit teaching has ended. And now, Jesus is going to pray for that which he just taught, that the Lord, that the Father, that Yahweh would actually make these things happen. John chapter 17 contains the longest prayer that we have from Jesus. It's called the high priestly prayer um, for many reasons, and we'll cover those, but it's really the Lord's prayer. We have the Lord's prayer for us in Matthew chapter 6, but that's really the disciples' prayer because in Matthew chapter 6, there are things that Jesus tells the disciples to pray for that Jesus could never pray for. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No, he has no debts. He has no sin to be forgiven of. Likewise, this prayer, though it is for the disciples, it's really the Lord's prayer because no one could pray this prayer except for Jesus. Restore to me the glory that I had before the world began. Nobody could pray that prayer. Matthew Henry says of this section, this is the most remarkable prayer following the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on the earth. Martin Luther says, This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. Jesus opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It's so honest and so simple, yet so deep, rich, and wide, no one can fathom it. The evening before Luther's death, he actually had this prayer read to him three times in a row before he passed away. Philip Melanchthon, a friend of Luther's, said, there's no voice which has ever been heard in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God the Father himself. And Philip Melanchthon also, as he lay dying, asked for this prayer to be read to him three times every day for seven days, and then he passed away. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, had this chapter read every day of his last week of life. Specifically asked his wife to sit on his bed, on his deathbed with him while he was passing away and read this chapter to him. Because he says, quote, this is the place where I first cast my anchor. This is the text that got him saved. We could spend a lifetime on these verses. Thomas Manton, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, preached 45 sermons on this section alone. Marcus Rainsford, an Irish preacher, wrote over 500 pages on this chapter alone. This chapter is so rich, it's so deep. That's why we're gonna slow down a little bit, maybe not 45 sermons worth, but we're gonna slow down a little bit. But we need to understand the depth of what's happening here, and we need to understand it in light of the simplicity of what's happening. So I wanna give you an outline for the whole chapter. It's very easy. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And 20 through 26, he's praying for all believers. So all three of these things, it's an outline of just his prayer. Verses 1 through 5, he's praying for himself, specifically that the will of the Father would be done. Verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples, the the ones that were following him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying for their sanctification. Verses 20 through 26, he prays for you and for me. He is praying for us. He's praying for Patrick Carmichael. He's praying for Alec Thomas. He's praying for Josh Press. He's praying for us. It's an amazing prayer that we find ourselves actually being prayed for by the Savior Himself. Notice in that outline, if you want to simplify even that simple outline, you could just say Jesus prays for Himself and for others. Verses 1 through 5, He prays for Himself. Verses 6 through 26, He prays for His followers. But notice there, again, he does not pray for himself as much as he's praying for others. He does not care for himself as much as he is serving and loving others. He prays for himself the least and for his followers the most. There are five main petitions in this prayer that we will go through. One is for himself. Four are for others, for his followers. Scottish preacher John Brown says it this way, The 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the whole world. The scripture of truth given in inspiration contains many wonderful passages, but none more wonderful than this. None so wonderful. It is the utterance of the mind and heart of the God-man in the very crisis of his undertaking, in the immediate prospect of completing by the sacrifice of himself the work which he had been given to him to do for the accomplishment for which he had come, the reason why he was incarnate. It is the utterance of these to the Father who had sent him. What a concentration of thought and affection is there in these few sentences." So we will give careful attention to these few sentences over the next couple months. And we will start this morning by looking just at verses 1 through 3. Let's read these verses together. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, that's our prayer this morning. We want to know you through Jesus Christ. We want to know Christ so that we can know the Father. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. Nobody knows the Father except through you. God, I I pray specifically for those in this room right now that know a lot about you. And maybe they stake their eternal destiny on knowledge about you. God, I know that was me. I, I... knew so much about you I didn't really want to know you I didn't want to be with you and then your spirit gave me life opened up your word in such a way that I could see Jesus as more wonderful than anything in this world and it's only by the spirit that I can say Jesus is Lord he is my master he's my everything he is my will He's my hope. He's my glory. He's my treasure. And that does not make me an an extra special saint. That makes me saved. That is salvation. So God, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things from this text. Shatter our paradigms of what it means to have eternal life. And may Jesus be glorified this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. Three verses, three points, and it's all dealing with eternal life. Jesus is praying about eternal life. So first we will look at the foundation of eternal life. What is the foundation of eternal life? That's verse one. Secondly, we will look at the giving of eternal life. That's verse two. And finally, verse three, we will look at the definition of eternal life. Each of these could have its own sermon. Um, So know that we are to a certain degree flying through these verses as well. Verse 1, the foundation of eternal life. Jesus spoke these things. The, these things is everything that he said from chapter 13 through 16, the upper room discourse. They are no longer in the upper room. They are now walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's amazing to think um, Jerusalem on a hill. You have to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, that's geographically speaking a location. It's, it's high on a mountain. Um, Jerusalem, Temple Mount on one side, then you'd have a steep uh, incline on either side, a big ravine, and a, a valley in the middle where there was a brook. This is the Kidron Valley, and you would walk from the Temple Mount down to over to where the Mount of Olives is, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You'd have to go down into the ravine, the Kidron Valley. There's a brook there, the brook Kidron. And it's, it's fascinating and sanctified imagination. I don't know where Jesus is. We know he's not in the upper room anymore. He might be by the Temple Mount. I actually personally believe he was by the Temple Mount when he was speaking on the the vine and the branches, John 15. I think he's going down the ravine, if not crossing over, if not almost to the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's interesting in sanctified imagination to think, if he is crossing over the Kidron Valley's brook, Josephus tells us that hundreds of thousands of lambs were sacrificed during the Passover. This is Passover. This is the night of Passover hundreds of thousands of lambs such that there was blood pouring from the temple mount that would fill the Kidron Valley with a river of blood. And as Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he's going to step over a bloodied brook that is itself a symbol of what he's about to go through. And he prays. He lifts up his eyes and he prays to heaven. I find it interesting how do we We tell our kids to pray. How do we pray? You know, bow your heads, close your eyes. Bow your heads. Jesus lifts his heads up. Opens his eyes. We close our eyes. Now, it's good to bow your head and close your eyes, right? That's a good thing. It's mainly for distraction purposes, to try and humble before God. Luke 18, try and make sure we don't have distractions. But Jesus does the exact opposite. So don't let anybody tell you that it's wrong to pray with your eyes open uh, up towards heaven with your head not bowed. He opens his eyes. He stares at heaven, and he prays. And he, he starts his prayer by saying, Abba, Father. He, he could have said God. He could have called God by his title, Elohim. But he says, Father. And he carries this relationship of Father through the entirety of this uh, high priestly prayer. He calls God his Father six explicit times, several times implied by reference. And we know that when he gets to the cross and he is crucified, he is going to pray, Father, forgive them, still in that relationship. And then it will be severed and we hear Jesus pray, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No longer a relationship of Father. He's under the Father's wrath. My God, my God. But then it will come back at the very end, right? What's the last thing that he says before he dies? father into your hand, I commit my spirit. He calls God his father. There are so many different reasons why he does this. This is equality. Um, he is making himself equal with God. We've already seen that in the gospel of John. People pick up stones to stone Jesus when he calls God his father. But specifically, I want to make note of two things. Number one, this is relational. There is a relationship that Jesus has with God in a familial sense. And the reason why that's important to know is because Jesus calls us his brother. You know, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He's not ashamed to call you a part of his family. And so if you are a part of his family, you can call Jesus your elder brother and you can call God your father as well. Jesus loves his father and he's inviting us into a familial relationship as well. We call God the father, the exact same thing that Jesus calls God the father. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is it. We have been waiting for this. Just, you don't have to turn there, but let me just repeat some references for you because we've seen this phrase several times in the Gospel of John. John chapter two, verse four, Jesus says to his mother, the hour hasn't come yet. John chapter seven, he says in verse six, the hour hasn't come. John chapter seven, verse eight, the hour hour hasn't come. Chapter seven, verse 30, the hour hasn't come. Chapter eight, verse 20, the hour hasn't come. But, John chapter 12, verse 20, Jesus says the hour is coming, the hour is here, it's upon us. And then if you turn back just a couple chapters to chapter 13, verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. This is it. This is what he has come for. It's the hour of his glorification. It's the hour that he is going to be crucified, endure the wrath of God on our behalf, be killed, be buried, be raised from the dead, and be exalted and ascend into heaven at the right hand of the Father. This is, as Romans 5 says, 5, 6 says, this is the right time that God died for the ungodly. This is the right time that God would send his son. Now is the time. God is sovereign over Jesus' suffering. He's sovereign over our suffering. We've seen that several times in the Upper Room Discourse, and Jesus affirms this as well. The hour has come. But then he says this, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, he's going to say this a couple of times, so we're not going to spend too much time on this phrase because he's going to reiterate this a couple different times throughout this section. But here's what we need to say and what we need to see about this prayer. Glorify your son so the son may glorify you. The act that Jesus is asking for is the cross glorify your son, glorify me, put me on the cross so that I can bring you glory. The very act that will bring shame is going to bring glory. Jesus Jesus uses glory as a synonym for crucifixion. And we'll see this in greater detail next week. Jesus says, glorify me because of who I am. What I've done, what I'm going to do, because I want to point people to you. And the act of glory that he is referring to is the cross, which is the foundation of our eternal life. As he's going to talk about eternal life, he's going to cement it in, glorify me at the cross. I want to go to the cross. The hour is here. Remember in John chapter 12, he said, Father, would I even ask that the hour would pass? Be by? No, it's for this hour that I've come. So glorify your son. Glorify your son. The foundation of our eternal life is the cross, And then he says in verse 2, the second point, he talks about the giving of eternal life. And he uses a little bit of a helpful explanation, a little parallel of sorts, because he says, glorify the Son so the Son may glorify you, just as you gave the Son authority over all flesh so that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. So do something for me so that I can give something to others and give it back to you. That's the parallel there. Give me glory so I can give you glory. Just as you gave me authority so that I could give salvation so that people would glorify you. I want, Father, I want you to be glorified. Notice he says first, you gave him authority over all flesh. You gave him authority over all flesh. That's every single living thing. And this is so helpful because even if you are not a Christian, Jesus still has authority over you. Even if you're not a Christian, he has been given authority over you. Why? Because he's God. All the way back in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that has been made came into existence through him, and nothing that has been made was made apart from him making it. He's God. He's pre-existent. He's coexistent. He's self-existent. In theology, we call this the aseity of God. A s e i. T-Y, the aseity, the the fact that nothing gives life to God. He gives life to everything. He doesn't need. He's not dependent upon anyone. That's why he calls himself I am. I just exist. That's who I am. He is life itself. So Jesus says, you have given me authority over all flesh. In submission, you've given that to me so that I can do something with it. And then he says this. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, clearly, we know that this is not a reference to all authority over all flesh because he's not giving all flesh eternal life. He, he hasn't given all flesh. There are people that will perish. Jesus has told us that several times. So, what is he saying? He's saying this. The authority that has been given to him is universal, but the exercise of that authority with regard to salvation is very specific. The authority is universal, but the exercise of that authority with regard to salvation is very specific. And it's specific to the phrase, all that you have given him. We've seen this many times already in the Gospel of John, and it shows up seven times in this prayer alone. Believers are a gift being given from the Father to the Son— we see other language referring to it as a, uh, a, a bride being given, um, a father being, uh, giving a bride to his son. We have been gifted to Jesus. What? You think about Christmas. I don't know about you, but when I have all the people on my list of who I have to get presents for, I never know if this present is the right present. Never. Just You always think, there, there's two questions that run around in my mind. The first question is, do they want this? Is this something they even want or care about? They used to care about it. Do they care about it? I don't know. I hope it's something that they like. The second thing is that weird, what if they give me something that's seven times more valuable than this and ah, uh, I should have gotten and you, you kind of want to say, oh, I forgot your present and just put it behind you and I'll get you something and then you have to go out and buy them a car later. Like, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? How do you give a gift? That's hard enough for fallible people around us, but what kind of gift do you give to the God of the universe? You can't get him a mansion. Jesus is making mansions, so that's not going to do anything. You can't give him gold because, I mean, he's making heaven with streets paved with gold. You can't offer him billions of worlds because he's created all of them. But you can give to him a bride, a people who are conformed to his image, purchased by his blood, made to be a part of his family all that you have given to me i am going to give eternal life to there's something interesting to note when you look at scripture and you look at the rest of this prayer just write these verses down isaiah 53 you know isaiah 53 verses 10 through 11. the lord was pleased to crush his son putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see what he has won and be satisfied. Think of Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Or Hebrews chapter, 10 verse, or chapter 2 verse 10, I already mentioned this, it was fitting for Jesus for whom all are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through his sufferings. As Jesus is just hours away from going to the cross, he brings to his mind what he is going to do at the cross and who he is going to win at the cross. And it's us. You and I are in the mind of Jesus we are a joy to him, Hebrews chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I don't know if you've ever experienced something awful that, that you know you have to go through. Maybe it's a dentist appointment or a doctor visit or some operation or procedure, and, and that day's on your calendar, and you know this day is coming, and you really don't want to have to go through with this, but you know ultimately something better is going to happen. You have a really painful toothache and the dentist is going to get in there, and is going to have to give you shots in your gum, in your teeth. It's going to be very painful, but at the end, the pain's going to be gone. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm going through those moments, I'm always thinking about, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I can get through this because of what's going to happen. Jesus does the same thing. He does the exact same thing going to the cross. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it, and what is it that is He's looking to, to say, okay, I can do it because I'm going to get this. I would say two things in these verses, the glory of the Father and the redemption of you and me. We are, to Jesus, a gift that is satisfying, that is comforting, that is appropriate, that he looks to to say, I'll go to the cross because I know what's going to happen. I can, I can purchase for myself the people that the Father has given to me. He says, you've given me authority over all flesh and specifically to those that you have given to me, I will give eternal life. I will give eternal life. We've seen this phrase before and it's very clear. It's abundantly clear. God is sovereign, not only over suffering in verse one, this is the hour, but God is also sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over our salvation. Go back to John chapter six. I just want us to see, revisit these verses again. John chapter six, verse 29. Jesus says to the crowd, this is the work of God that you believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. Drop down to verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Believe, believe, just believe. Verse 37. All that the father gives to me, will come, and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. So, you need to believe, but the Father is going to give you to me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. Okay, so it's all of God. Well, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So believe, believe. But then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so I don't have to do anything, because nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws you and gifts you to the Son. Well, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Believe, just believe. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats, whosoever eats of this bread, he will live forever. Anybody can do this. Verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. You can't believe unless the Spirit produces life in you. 64, there are some of you who do not believe. You need to believe, but some of you don't believe. Which is it? Is it the Father gives... And only those that the Father gives are going to truly be saved, or is it dependent upon our belief? And if you, if you remember our sermons through this section, and even just reading this, if you're scratching your head going, wait, this is really confusing. You're not alone, verse 66, as a result of this, of what? Of what we just looked at, of Jesus saying, believe, uh, it's all you, it's all me, back and forth. This is confusing. And as a result, because of their struggle too, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. If you struggle with God's sovereignty in salvation, can I just plead with you? We everybody does. Nobody has this figured out. If we could figure this out, we could all write a book and make millions of dollars because we figured it out. Nobody's figured this out. It's a mystery. What we know clearly in the scriptures, we can know clearly, but there are hidden things that belong only to the Lord that we can't fully understand. But we can know clearly, only those that the Father gives to the Son will be saved. And we know that the command is given to the entire world, believe. Believe. So I would plead with you, if you struggle with this idea of the sovereignty of God in salvation, don't let that struggle lead you to whining complaining. Let it lead you to worship. Let it lead you to say, God, your ways are higher than mine. I know clearly what this text is saying, and if you're saved, Paul would tell us, nobody can say, this is the Lord. This is my Lord. You are my Lord, but by the Spirit's work in your life. Many people say, well, then how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm predestined? How do I know if I am one of those, all that have been given to the Father? How do I know? My answer would be, do you believe? If you believe and you're saved, nobody can believe if the Father hasn't given you to the Son, the Son's going to give you eternal life. If you have eternal life, you were given. But the bottom line is it's not our place to find that out in one another. I would give you 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Look, you can make certain of His calling of you. And the way to do that is to love Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you're proving that you truly are saved. And if you truly are saved, then you are a gift from the Father to the Son. We have to believe this, not only because it's biblical, but because it's reasonable. Ephesians chapter 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot choose to believe. We are legally guilty. We are spiritually dead. And Jesus is the one who has to do the work because the Father has given us to the Son and the Spirit works the redemption in our lives. Honestly, I know that this is a struggle and even we've had conversations before at small group, after church. We've had conversations where this is a hard doctrine. This is a hard biblical teaching to wrap our minds around. I understand that. But can I I honestly tell you I have never met somebody who functionally believes, functionally believes that they are the one who gets themselves saved, that God's not sovereign in their salvation. I've never met somebody who functionally believes that, because I've met several people who say, oh, I don't believe in election, I don't believe in predestination, I don't believe in God's choosing, and then they'll say, can you do me a favor and pray for my friend? My friend doesn't know Jesus, and I'd like them to know Jesus wait, time out. Why, why are you asking me to pray? What are you asking me to ask God to do in their life if it's all dependent upon them? I've never met somebody who says, you don't need to pray for anybody in my life. I'll do the work myself. Never. Even though there are people that say, I don't believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, they'll still say, yeah, but functionally, I need God to help me. I need God to do the work. Jesus says in John 17, every single person that has been given to me by the Father, I will give eternal life. Through the foundation of the cross, the cross is the foundation, but because I'm going to the cross, I am securing at the cross the redemption of those that the Father has given to me. It is finished at the cross. He's gonna give eternal life. So we have the gift of eternal life, we have the foundation of eternal life, but that leads us to this next point in verse three, the question, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Jesus is gonna define it for us. So that everybody who's you've given to me, I may give eternal life. Okay, great, but what is eternal life? What is it that I am getting in eternal life? Instantly, we would think of John 3.16, right? John 3.16, God gave us Jesus as a gift so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. Many people just simply stop at eternal life equals living forever. But what's wrong with that? That's true to a degree. That's partly true. But what's wrong with that? You know what's wrong with that. Every single human being will live forever. Some will live in heaven and some will live in hell. But every single human being will live forever. So it's only partly true that eternal life equals just a quantity of time, everlasting life, eternal life as far as you will live forever. It's only partly true. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus defines for us what eternal life is, and it has nothing to do with time. Nothing to do with time. Let's read the verse. Verse 3, This is eternal life. What's the definition? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what eternal life is. To know the Father and to know the Son. It's very intriguing because... Sometimes we forget this is a prayer. Sometimes we forget what's happening, what's taking place here. Jesus is praying. Verse 3 is really weird because Jesus is praying because this is the only time that we ever see Jesus referring to himself by name in the third person in a prayer. It would be as if I were praying, saying, God, please bless the sermon, and I pray that you would help Patrick Carmichael to be able to communicate clearly. That's what he's saying. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Not me, but Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who has come to take away sin, Christ, the Messiah, the King, who has been sent by God. Jesus defines eternal life by time. Not by time, but by relationship. Not by an everlasting nature of life, by a quantity of time, but by relationship, by relating. Eternal life, is partly about time, but it's so much more about a relationship to know Christ. Now, there's different types of knowledge, right? Different types of knowledge. Let's think about the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. The opposite of eternal life is condemnation. And what is the basis of condemnation? If you go to Matthew chapter 7, we won't turn there for time, you know this passage. Jesus says, on that last day there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you, we preached, we cast out demons, and he will say to them what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Now this is going to help us with our understanding of what the definition of know is. You can know somebody exists, you can know a lot about somebody, or you can intimately know them in a relationship. You can know that somebody exists. That's not what God's saying. I never knew you existed. I don't know who you are. I never knew you existed. No, God created them. He knows a lot about us. He knows everything there is about us. So it's not, I didn't know much about who you were. I knew you existed because I made you, but I didn't know much about who you were. You never really filled me in on your life. What Jesus is saying is, there was never an intimate relationship of love. I never knew you intimately. I never had a relationship based on love, an intimate relationship. That word no, it, we see that in Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's, it's used to speak of the most physically intimate moment whatsoever, and it's just the word no. It's intimacy. It's intimate knowledge. So in John chapter 17, when Jesus says, this is eternal life, To know you. It's not know about you. It's not to know he exists. Everybody knows he exists based on Romans 1. It's not to know things about God. I believe that Satan probably knows more things about God than we do. He's had a lot more time. He's been in his presence. But it's to know him intimately. What sets us apart from the devil? It's not knowing God. We know who God is. It's not knowledge of things about God. I think the devil has more knowledge about the things of God than we do. It's an intimate love. It's saying, I have a knowledge of your existence and who you are, and I love you. The devil hates God. But how do we have this knowledge? How do we gain this knowledge? The five senses don't really work that well for us with regard to this knowledge. We have a knowledge of our spouses based on things that we enjoy together using our five senses. But you can't see God. You can't hear him speak. You can't touch him. You can't hang out with him for coffee. How how do we do this? Go back to John chapter 14. How do we know God? That's eternal life, so how do we do it? John chapter 14, verse 21. How do we enjoy this experience of knowledge of God that's intimate, not just an intellectual knowledge? Verse 21, "'He who has my commandments and keeps them "'is the one who loves me, "'and he who loves me will be loved by my Father.'" And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we want Jesus to disclose himself to us so that we can know him intimately. How do we do that? We have to have the commandments of God and we have to keep them. We have to have the commandments of God that's in this book and we have to do them. We have to do what God tells us to do. How do we love and obey God? How do we keep his commandments? We have to know his word. We have to know his word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a very interesting passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says this, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or live, no longer as the Gentiles also walk or live, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of their hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But he's going to say, you're different. So he said, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't walk like the Gentiles. So you would expect him to say, but you don't walk like that. You don't live like that. But instead he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. You're different because you learned Christ. Not a different way of living life. Knowing Christ produces a different way of living life. Christianity is rational. You have to understand the things of Scripture, and it changes what we think and what we know and how we think and how we live. Jesus says eternal life is to know the Father, and know the Son. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I am afraid of this, that you would be led astray by purity and from purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ, that you'd be led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. Again, I think 1 John is John's exposition of this upper room discourse. 1 John chapter 5, as he ends this epistle, John writes in verse 20, 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Had nothing to do with time there. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing the Son, knowing Him who is true. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 18. The last verse in 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Paul proclaims Christ, Colossians chapter 1. We proclaim Christ, not a system of ethics, a way to live life. This is Christ. If you understand Christ and know Christ, it changes everything. Um, Paul prays this in Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul prays that what Jesus said would happen would actually happen. Philippians chapter three, verse eight. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If there isn't a love and desire and affection for Jesus in your life, no matter how much you might know intellectually about God, can I graciously ask you to ask your own heart to see, are you truly saved? Eternal life, salvation is to know Christ. And to know Christ is to be intimately acquainted with him, not just knowledge, but a love. That's why everything that we do on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, on a Thursday night, every time we gather, we are trying to grow our affections for Christ. We want to love him more. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. We will be living life the way we're supposed to live. We don't want to just impart head knowledge. Is there a burden in your life to know Christ? to spend time with him, to point others to him. There's a big difference. We talked about this last week between not wanting to go to hell and wanting to be with Jesus in heaven. If you don't love Jesus, you're going to hate heaven. If you just know things about Jesus and expect to love heaven, you're going to be greatly mistaken. If you think your knowledge about who God is is going to gain access and entrance into heaven, And when you stand before God as your judge and say, I know who you are. I know all about you. The question is going to be, yeah, but do you love me? Do you adore me? That's what we sing at Christmas, these songs. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We want to be with you. And those same songs that were prayers of the saints of old before the first coming of Christ, those are the songs that we sing now for the second coming. We want to be with him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you're not going to like heaven. Eternal life is less than less a a quantity of time and more a quality of relationship. John chapter seventeen verse three. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one that sent me, and that they would know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Father is gathering a bride for His Son. We are that bride. We are in the engagement period. We're betrothed to Him. Just remember the time that you were engaged. You just could not wait to be married. Every day seemed like an eternity. I just want to be with the one that I love. Heaven is the place where we finally get to be with him forever. And as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we'll know face to face. We know in part now, but then we will know intimately. So, as we wrap this up, we see the foundation of eternal life is the cross, the work that Jesus is going to do at the cross The giving of eternal life. It's a gift to those that the Father has given to the Son, that the Son would secure their salvation at the cross. And finally, the definition of eternal life. The definition of eternal life, not a quantity of time, but a quality of relationship. So we have to ask these three questions. First question is, is Jesus everything to you? Is he everything to you? Is he what you think about in the morning Is he what you think about during the day? What is everything to you? Think about the fires that are going on right outside these doors. You you can see smoke. These are great moments to stop and think, what, what would life be like if the fires came through my house and I lost everything? What is it that a fire could take away from your life such that you would say, that's it, my life's over. I'm done. Maybe it's a possession that you have. Maybe it's your work, maybe it's your family. These are all great things. But Jesus has to be everything. The second question would be, what would others say is everything to you? Is Jesus your everything, honestly? And then ask others. That's what our small groups are for. Do you love Jesus more than everything? He, he has to be your only pursuit. And if he's not, you cannot say that you're saved. Is Jesus everything? That's what Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And if you do that, a couple chapters later, it's going to look like you hate your family members. He's not telling us that we should hate our family members, but in comparison of our love to Jesus, it's going to look like every other relationship is hate. Finally, the last question, who is there in your life that you can welcome into eternal happiness to love Jesus? to no satisfaction. Who do you know in your life that you can share this verse with? Talk about this sermon. Say, we just met at church. You should come next week. And we just heard a message about what eternal life is. What do you think it is? And they'd probably say, well, I think it's a quantity of time. It's living forever. You know, the Bible says that everybody does that. God graciously raises everybody from the dead. Who can you take this message to and share the message of eternal life with? Brothers and sisters, this verse changed my life. And when I was in college, I heard this verse preached, read this verse, John 17, 3, memorized this verse, wrote a song on this verse called To Know You, Lord. Christ is everything. This verse, as John Knox said, is the anchor for my soul. Because this verse set my life on a completely different direction, completely different trajectory. It was, I want to know about God, and I'll do things that help me know about God, but I also want to do all these other things. And in college, it became, I just want to love Jesus. And if I do that well, everything else will fall into place the way it's supposed to. But I just want to love him more than anything in this world. And I want to help others to see he is more lovely, valuable, precious than anything that this world has to offer. He is. So what do you have to give up today to say, you know what, that's it. I'm going to pursue Christ and Christ alone. He's worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this verse. These three verses, yes, but this final verse, the definition of our salvation is to know Christ. God, this this changes everything. The way that I talk with my family, I want them to know you. I want to be an image bearer of your love, mercy, and grace to them. I want to keep your commandments so that they can see that obedience always brings joy and that you are the best option. There's nothing out there that beats you. God, we love you and we want to love you more. We believe, help our unbelief. God, I pray for those in this room that know a lot about you, maybe born and raised in the church as I was. What a precious gift. But with it comes the responsibility that sometimes just accumulating knowledge equals salvation in our minds. And the Bible is so clear. Salvation, eternal life, is a relationship of love with the God of the universe. You paved the way. You gave us to the Son so that we could have that relationship. And God, I pray that even now in this room, those that know a lot about you, would turn to you with a paradigm-shattering moment and say, no, it's not to know about you. It's to wake up every morning to chase you down and to pursue you with everything that I have. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to love you more this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.